Welcome, friends and fiends, to another episode of Cult and Classic Podcast. I'm your host, film critic and comedian, Nate Wyckoff, and I just want to remind you to like and subscribe, and go ahead and go to cultandclassicfilms.com to buy exclusive cult movies on high-definition special editions with all sorts of things like milk caps, autograph movies, slip covers, and you can actually subscribe to get them delivered monthly to your door at a discount by going to cultandclassicfilms.com. Thank you so much, and remember, unlike the background here, which is from Escape from New York, you do not want to escape this pod because we are bringing you awesome, awesome film content every week. Thanks, and enjoy. Welcome to Cult and Classic. <laughs> Welcome, friends and fiends, to another episode of Cult and Classic Films Podcast. I'm your host, film critic and comedian, Nate Wyckoff. Today's kind of a special episode. It's just me, so uh, if you're, for some reason, not used to me blathering on for nearly the entire time with a small snippet of uh, the rest of our crew actually able to get a word in, then you may be disappointed, but, uh, you know, I think it'll be uh, a lot of the same. Actually, it is going to be different because today we are actually talking about two decidedly classic films. Now, I know the vast majority of our listeners are not only interested in film, classic and otherwise, but especially cult film. So I'm also going to, uh, as I talk about these two movies, discuss their importance to cinema in general, as well as specifically to cult films as we now have them. So there's a lot to talk about here. Uh, I'm going to first discuss uh, the 1950 classic by director John Ford, Rio Grande with, uh, well, with John Wayne. Uh, there's really, there's really, a, you can't talk about uh, Rio Grande without talking about John Wayne and also Maureen O'Hara who plays um, the, uh, the counterpart to him. Uh, Marine was and John Wayne worked together first on this film, I believe, uh, and they collaborated, I think, another on another three films, uh, all of them successful. They were both kind of considered one of the darling couples of films at the time in the 50s to 60s. And they're not uh, actually a real couple, apparently. They were close friends after this, uh, and uh, but they, they were not romantic to my understanding so john wayne if you don't know anything about john wayne besides the million billion bad white guy stereo uh, stereotypical voice parallels that they try and do like you know well pilgrim here's the thing it's sort of like christopher walken in that as much as we're tired of people doing a john wayne accent they're also all kind of close <laughs> john wayne really did have this sort of funky drawl um slow speech way of talking in his films uh it, it was sort of a heightened version of his voice in his films i think and uh it really became iconic to him i believe at one point he was quoted as saying something like he actually wasn't much of an actor so choices like that were sort of bold uh, i don't have the exact quote so i could be slightly misrepresenting there but that was a consensus uh among <laughs> among him and uh his close compatriots is that that was part of the reason but many people absolutely adored him uh author joan didion essayist and journalist and novelist um knew him and was on the set of several of his films uh and she credited him with sort of being her first uh sort of 
example of of raw sexuality on the screen so he was very much considered a a sex symbol at the time i don't think we would do that now this is definitely i mean this is 1950 this is the era where the strong uh white lead kind of often had a little bit of a dad bod you know a little belly uh and and just a really tight shirt of course in this case it's a western so he's often got a a cowboy get up and a vest on but yes rio grande is a western as i mentioned is directed by john ford who is one of the most celebrated and famed directors in american history we will talk more about john ford here shortly but uh the movie is about john wayne's character who is a cavalry officer posted on the rio grande and he's confronted with um with apaches so this is after the civil war uh the cavalry officer in question here that uh, John Wayne plays is Lieutenant York. He played a character uh, also named Kirby York in another later film, uh, but it sort of would be impossible for them to be the same character given some surrounding facts. So here that there is sort of a sequel to this that is, I would say, dubious. But John Wayne's character of, of, uh, of Kirby York is stationed at the Rio Grande and uh, he he fought for the Union Army. And while it doesn't really make it that clear, it is it is kind of hedged around, is that his wife is estranged from him and his son because uh, he fought for the Union Army, yet they lived in the South. So it, it sounded like he participated in some of the Union's destruction of Southern households, perhaps even their own. So that's kind of where the wedge is driven between our lead and his estranged wife and son and the son comes to be whipped into shape as a soldier uh, at the Rio Grande post by our our good lead John Wayne so and Marino O'Hara is of course the estranged wife so here's the thing about this movie it is uh, very much an American western uh, especially pre-60s when spaghetti westerns, you know, it's Italian filmed or Italian financed westerns hadn't taken off yet. They they hadn't become, you know, John Ford, director uh, John Ford, his films like this one were the heavy inspiration behind uh, sort of spaghetti westerns and that movement. And so the very rough elements of those those later spaghetti westerns uh, Italian westerns where there's lots of blood and and grime and stuff they're not quite present in these movies uh these these John Ford uh westerns and similar movies his war movies maybe a little more but still not that much okay so this is the, considered the third of John Ford's cavalry westerns uh so it's the cavalry trilogy uh they're related in, in theme rather than characters and uh, it's said that uh, this movie was sort of written and conceived of as a parallel to the Korean War, uh, where, which is possibly true. Um, the idea is that the Apaches were jumping across the river and, and doing raids and, and stealing and killing and causing mischief and then jumping back across. And um, the soldiers were not supposed to pursue them, which uh, was then parallel to the uh, Korean war tactics they would you know jump the border of between north and south and then cause mischief and then go back to the north uh, and soldiers were not allowed to follow them famously uh john wayne 
said that he, like his character in this film, uh, believed that they should cross the river and go after um, the opposition forces. Whether you believe that that was the right move or not, it's fascinating because this film is very much a conservative production. And I mean conservative politically. Uh, of course, nowadays in the United States, conservative is rife with implications on uh, the suppression of free speech that is not harming others. Uh, and even then, uh, they want to shut up everything that they don't believe in or that they don't like, like women's rights, women's reproductive rights, uh, the queer communities. So this is kind of a different conservative, although, you know, one begets the other, right? So, but in conservative, we mean that this movie is very much American-centric, uh, and they support very American-centric leadership that is very hard on crime. We're talking uh, Reagan, Richard Nixon, um, uh, later George Bush and George Bush Jr., although to be in the grand scheme of things, they perhaps are slightly less than uh, than Reagan and Nixon are on, on crime and that whole concept of othering uh, people to make them targets for our law enforcement. This is all sort of, it seems unrelated, but it's not. Because this is one of those American movies where right is right, wrong is wrong, and the hero will always prevail uh, to do what they need to do. In this case, York needs to uh, defeat the enemy and, and save and rebuild his family, bring them closer together. John Ford was not interested in doing movies uh, that really had a great deal of complexity of character. So that I think is why, while he's considered a a true legend among American film historians, I don't think his movies speak, most of them, he made many movies. I think he made over 160 films, many of which are actually lost. But you, I don't think these films often carry the same weight then as they do now, unlike others, which we'll talk about later, because things are not gray. And we have come to understand things in a very gray territory, at least those of us who uh, are into analytics, analytics of ourselves, analytics of other things. So what I mean by that is this movie is exactly what you see on the surface. Native Americans bad, uh, Civil War Union veteran good, and there we have it. Uh, American forces good, everybody else bad. And they actually, they did some interesting things. Uh, they actually brought um, some Navajo people to the set to play Apaches. Interestingly enough, it was later said by one of the uh, Navajo actors that they were not told they were playing Apache. Um, that that was told, that was said by Lee Bradley, uh, who is the translator, excuse me, that was, Lee Bradley was the translator, but Billy Yellow was one of the uh, Native Americans who was, you can see him in close-ups, uh, several close-ups throughout the film. He, apparently they weren't told they were playing Apache, which, you know, that is kind of just indicative of the uh, unkind nature of uh, the xenophobia that is sort of rampant through conservative cinema and beliefs to this day. But that's also was not uncommon in American movie making then. And frankly, we could argue it's not uncommon now. Uh, there are lots of things between whitewashing and um, 
passing over of of actors and crew members of color. So going on a tangent here, but Rio Grande is a beautifully shot film. There is a lot of nature and you know wide landscapes uh, which are very indicative of this era of western and not even just this era this is something that john ford did that inspired many other filmmakers uh of course as i mentioned spaghetti westerns but also uh everything from samurai films to um to detective films use some of this sort of wide camera work to uh, really give a sense of place to these movies in, in many ways rio grande like other of john ford's movies the locations this idea of sort of a a deserty barrenness that uh cowboys and and soldiers uh, etc would pass through it comes from these movies uh, and to get that we have almost a mars scape right like many of these places are sort of similar to the ones that uh, were used to film uh, 40s and 50s science fiction movies where it's supposed to be another planet and we get that vibe in a way it's it's it gives it a time and place that is perhaps foreign to most of the viewers which is an effective thing to do so there's a lot of music in this movie um some some critics even at the time did not like all of the music there were other people who defended it saying that cavalrymen sang on a regular basis which seems to be true <laughs> there is also the fact however that uh the uh, the there people who sing in the movie are often the uh, I'm, I'm stumbling my words here because it's a it's a name that we're not generally familiar with these days but uh a group called the sons of the pioneers uh the lead singer ken curtis was actually the son-of-law of director john ford so i have a feeling that there were several reasons uh beyond studio um requirements that that had a lot of move uh, music in this film so you might think that i'm not particularly selling rio grande very well here i don't want to give that impression if possible because it is a stunning film also the characters may not be as deep as one would like especially in today's cinema but they are very well portrayed by the cast uh, there's no question that john wayne is a very engaging performer he absolutely is recognizable no one walks talks uh or or really projects like john wayne he almost shouts every line and i'm not saying that as a detriment there's something truly unique about his performances um he often walks belly out uh he's very tall just he's an imposing presence and it does work in the lead role and then of course maureen o'hara is uh, just a, a stunning beauty who has all sorts of um, ties to famed film legends like lucille ball uh mira loy and she also was quite the a magazine proprietor after her retirement from film she always had to be doing something and she really accomplished a lot she also really impressively was um credited as one of the first women to really do her own stunts uh, i don't know if she did all of them but she did many and this also is interesting because this movie is was lauded as having like a lot of the cast members doing some of their own stunts but according to uh o'hara there actually were several stunt people who died during this film during um some river crossings with horses and their bodies according to her were never found so it's interesting to at one hand on one hand 
say, wow, look at all this great stuff they accomplished. And on the other hand, be like, by the way, these people died doing this. And that's sort of left to the um, to, to the imagination as to how accurate either side's claims were. But it wouldn't, I assume people did die. Uh, if they said it, there's no reason to share that otherwise um, as she did. So I mentioned several times and went into how this movie is sort of a conservative ideal in, in the American culture uh, of this era, 1950s, but it actually goes beyond that to the cast itself. So Maureen O'Hara was a very staunch conservative. She supported um, every Republican candidate uh, up through uh, George Bush Jr., I believe, and she was of that group as was uh, director John Ford. John Ford's films, uh, it's said by many, don't really take a conservative or liberal side. I disagree with that. Uh, I, I do think that his films are squarely in the conservative side in the fact that um, they're not, like I said, it's black and white. Uh, and I don't think that that's something that uh, a very progressive, culturally progressive, societally, um, uh, society looking towards equality can can hold as their own because if you want to keep things the same you look at it black and white this is how we do it and this is good anything else is is bad okay whereas if you look at it from a more nuanced view you're going to see that this happens because of this so the bad guy may not be bad all the way like that whole concept of every villain is the hero of their own story or the hero in their own mind that's something that a movie like this i I don't really feel is interested in. Uh, so Marina Harrow was a, a staunch conservative uh, uh, politics wise. And uh, so was John Ford. Uh, he was also John Ford uh, was a, a director with some really excellent skills for visuals uh, and, and working with the cast. Although he often, he was kind of a jerk. Uh, I feel like a lot of people didn't like him, but he's one of those people who was so successful in his time that uh, he was above uh, critique by many. Uh, it, it, you know, anyone, he was so high up in the echelon of uh, the studio system that if you were, if you didn't like him, it, you were probably below him and so couldn't really safely um, share your disdain which i do think there was a lot of disdain he was very rude to people um product producers didn't really love him either because he likes to torment them when they come on a set which in that case it's sort of like you know the the uh, stereotypical landlord no one really likes the, the landlord or the person putting the bills that, that has some sort of uh, vested interest and ability to affect what we're doing with our lives so that's sort of understandable but everything else you know he said that he made money he made movies to pay the bills and yet um in a way that he didn't care but he clearly did because he had projects that he really wanted to get done this was actually one of them uh he actually signed on to do this film to have another film produced that was uh projected to make less money so this was sort of to cover that potential loss um, but again it's a grand scale movie it's about two and a half hours uh, which is indicative of how sweeping it is uh, i i think that this movie um 
is particularly interesting to me because of John Wayne and John Ford's relationship. So John Wayne, uh, who he was, for those who don't know this at this point, John Wayne is is not his his birth name. Uh, his his first his birth name is uh, Marion, uh, but he he understandably went with John Wayne for his stage name. But John Wayne was a draft dodger, and it was when it became known, uh, John Ford thought it basically thought horribly of him. Uh, he 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 did not like him. Uh, John Ford served, uh, and so he was he found it vile. And it's interesting because John Ford and and John Wayne did work and did quite quite well together. Um, John Wayne also received uh, a, a a very prominent lifetime award from the government, which is again fascinating because he was a draft dodger. I mean, th this is and now I have nothing against draft dodging. To be completely honest, as listeners will know, I am fairly progressive, and I don't think that uh, I would want to send my son or daughter into combat, especially if it was a combat uh, situation that I didn't believe was uh, right or worthwhile to be in. So I certainly don't have any ill will towards that, but John Ford did, and it's interesting that John Wayne, who also shared conservative ideals openly in many cases, um, perhaps not to the extent that Marino O'Hara or John Ford did, uh, but he was lauded as an American hero in many ways. And his performances in in war and cowboy and and um, these historical America films really put him in the in the mind's eye of the public as sort of the iconic, let's go America. And that's sort of not the case in his actual life. Okay, so why is this movie important for cult lovers? There's a there's a, a very clear reasons why this movie and John Ford in general uh, and his films are important and why I think they are worth watching. One, I may be sort of sounding like I'm, pardon the phrase, shitting on Rio Grande. It's a beautiful movie. It actually is a beautiful movie. I think it's one of John Ford's most beautiful films. And although he said he didn't really take it too seriously, it was a paycheck you know, kind of deal for him. Uh, it is one of the most impressive and grand scale movies that he did. Uh, it also is one of the last movies, I believe that was in black and white for him. In fact, his, I think his next feature was color. Uh, so it's interesting to see this kind of beautiful film in black and white, uh, because it's, it shows how without color, you can still get incredible contrast, incredible uh, composition, all those things that we kind of would think can only be achieved through really high, uh, high quality color. That is simply not the case. In fact, especially with these early color films, black and white is so much more striking, so much higher contrast and, and better delineated uh, among the characters and backgrounds. And you can play with the light and shadow. They're actually far more striking. So this is one of the last, I think, where we see that kind of really amazingly well done, beautiful, uh, beautiful work. And uh, Warner Brothers Discovery has released a 4K transfer of this that is quite beautiful i think it's the best it's ever looked and so you can 
by the way, if you're listening to this before uh, the end of August 2023, uh, you can go to our website, coltonclassicfilms.com, and sign up for our newsletter there. And for every um, sign up on the newsletter, you will get an entry to win a copy of uh, a digital copy of Rio Grande in 4K, as well as the partner film, which we're talking about next, East of Eden from 1955. All right. So to wrap it all up, this is a beautiful film. It is engaging, despite the length. I do think it's a little long. Uh, but visuals alone and the fact to see that you get to see um, such iconic uh, actors of this era, John Wayne, Marina Hara, and there are many, many more in this movie as well that uh, uh, cast members that are worthy of note. Uh, Harry Carey Jr., um, Chill Wills, uh, as I said, we have the son of the sons of the pioneers, uh, Steve Pendleton, Carolyn Grimes. I mean, these are these are heavy hitters uh, in American cinema. Whether or not we really know their names now, without uh, without looking them up. So I'm going to go ahead and tell you why I think this movie is important for cult uh, film lovers to know. Okay, and it's because of how it inspired other directors that we're more familiar with. There are some some big directors. Steven Spielberg has claimed that he watch uh, he watches a couple of um, John Ford movies before he undergoes any project because he they inspire him. Uh, what's interesting to me is that while Steven Spielberg is certainly not considered a cult filmmaker, he is another one of the most successful filmmakers of all time, especially in our contemporary uh mind but his movies especially the movies he's produced but not directed such as joe dante's gremlins um and then we of course have spielberg's et um the project he finished for stanley kubrick um ai these movies are frankly cult films uh they're not the hits that uh, we think of when somebody says to us steven spielberg okay uh, we think of his big uh, mainstream successes uh, but he does make cult films because he makes films that he cares about um, so sometimes those are cult films sometimes they're not and i also would say that his movies especially things like et have uh, inspired cult filmmakers around the world and continue to do so that whole sort of stranger things vibe because stranger things is very very sort of obsessed thematically with spielberg's uh, work in the um in the kids' movies and alien-themed uh, films. All of that stuff that we get, movies like The Gate, um, movies uh, that are, are cult through and through, they come from this. It's, it's only, it's a couple of steps removed. You don't have to get that far to get to Kevin Bacon in this case. Um, so that's a, a big one. In addition, John Ford Westerns, like Rio Grande, they not only inspired, as I suggested before, um, Spaghetti Westerns, um, the most famous director of being uh, Sergio Leone. Uh, Sergio Leone means, I mean, he he saw John Ford movies and he said, ah, okay, I can do these Westerns, okay? Uh, interestingly enough, Sergio Leone actually he felt sort of what I said that there's not a great deal of depth, character depth in um, John Ford's Westerns. And in response to that, uh, he believes that, uh, that, that people wanted to see 
more behind the characters. They wanted to see more um, moral ambiguity, more um, complicated drive uh, for their characters. Um, and it sort of led ultimately to what we think of with that sort of gritty, almost uh, almost Scorsesean gritty inner, inner cityness in the Western setting that really just permeates spaghetti Westerns as, as a genre. So that's really important. And I mean, so Sergio Leone is in a different way was certainly inspired uh, by this. Uh, David Fincher is another big one that was inspired. Um, but I think that to me, the most impressive inspiration was Akira Kurosawa. Akira Kurosawa is one of the most uh, lauded and rightfully so in this reviewer's opinion, uh, Japanese filmmakers of all time. Uh, he has done the uh, the most highest of high honor samurai films. Uh, if if nothing else, if you know nothing else about Akira Kurosawa's work, those are his crown considered like his crowning achievements um, because of their continual reference um, by by contemporary cinema contemporary creatives of all types so movies like ron movies like seven samurai which is perhaps arguably the most famous yojimbo sanjuro which is a sequel uh they're they're incredible and you can actually see the parallel from many of john ford's uh westerns which did give us the idea of what a western should look like and feel like and the duels and the cities and um you know heroes and villains uh that they do come in a, in a way from John Ford's movies, uh, despite the fact that they have a sort of a, as I said, a more simplistic moral code. But you can see those in Akira Kurosawa's samurai films. Uh, he sort of uh, gunfights with swords, it was one way to put it, which I think was later taken to an extreme stylistic end by John Woo. Um, there's also some focus on the uh, on nature in it, you know, wind, fire, rain, that's that's something that, as I mentioned, with sort of the uh, landscape feel of John Ford's Westerns, uh, that is, it's important. It is a strong element. You know, characters are often passing in the foreground or staring into the background of a wide vista of, um, of as Rio Grande, the, of rivers. There's, there's just a very important focus on these um, these elements in these movies. Okay, so Akira Kurosawa, uh, Steven Spielberg, Sergio Leone, uh, the spaghetti western, um, uh, nature elements, samurai films. These are things where we can start to see, oh, okay, Rio Grande and John Ford's movies do uh, inspire, but also inform filmmakers of the future, which does have, uh, you could say a trickle down, I think it's larger than trickle down, but an effect to cult filmmakers, right? How many times have we watched a bonkers cult film uh, and thought, oh yes, this is a take on uh, a, a a samurai duel, right? Um, how This is, uh, let's look at one of my favorite films that got me into independent films in general, Six String Samurai. Six String, Six String Samurai, uh, takes heavily from Akira Kurosawa films, but in turn takes from films like Rio Grande, right? Rio, Rio Grande, um, Rio Grande, I've heard it said both ways. I certainly am not an expert of the Spanish language, so I apologize. But it's it, one of those, you can see it, right? So if you have the background understanding of a movie like Rio Grande, and then you, uh, 
and then you watch something like Six String Samurai, these dec many decades later, these cult films, these uh, sort of independent, these strange films, all the way down to like the backyard films, right? You will you will be able to pick out direct references. They're so permeated in our cinematic understanding in the modern uh, age of American cinema, and I would argue worldwide cinema at this point, that we may not know if we don't watch something like Rio Grande, why we understand what we're seeing, why we understand, you know, the shot of the eyes, the shot of the other eyes of the character, the reach for the gun. Like these things are referenced without us. They're referenced so often that we don't always know the origin. But Rio Grande and uh, other John Ford films of the time, they are many of the origins. So if you, you know, like I said, John Ford didn't seem always like a nice person to others, but he did have a visionary understanding of cinema. So that's the end of this part one of uh, classics, why they matter to cult films, where we talked about Rio Grande, 1950. Next week, we're going to get into a sort of a, a complete opposite kind of film from only five years later, and that's East of Eden, uh, which is uh, the sort of the first James Dean movie that rocketed him to stardom, made uh, very shortly before Rebel Without a Cause, which would be his sort of opus and would be released uh, after he had died. So this is not, uh, as I said, it's sort of the antithesis to Rio Grande. And I love that um, Warner Brothers Discovery is releasing um, both of these films in 4K digital at the same time because they're only five years apart in production and yet they are worlds apart in content. All right. So this was a, I think, a somber look at film history here and the origins of cult cinema. But I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, we will be back next week with part two. And then I promise you, we're also going to have some crazy pairings of bonkers, banana, crazy action, gore, all sorts of weird stuff and future pairings after this. So strap in for some intellectual discussions, some historical knowledge, some understanding of cult origin, which will help you appreciate the awesome weirdness that you see in our future pairings. Thanks so much for listening. This is Nate Wyckoff. I also want to say, go to our website, cultandclassicfilms.com, sign up for our newsletter, check out our store. We have uh, our first release uh, film. And if you're listening to this later, we're releasing a new one every month, uh, starting this August 2023. So there's lots of movies you can check out and uh, buy them. Join our Patreon and we'll deliver them to your, your door every month. A brand new film, exclusive format to us with all sorts of extras like signed up, you know, autographed posters, uh, milk caps. Uh, they are, are uh, well, they, they could be pogs, but pogs is a, a copyrighted or trademark term. So they're milk caps, uh, but they're very cool. So anyway, check all that stuff out. Patreon.com slash Colton Classic Films and go to our YouTube, which is youtube.com slash at Cult and Classic Films. That is the at symbol, Cult and Classic Films, because we're putting these video episodes up every Tuesday. All the new ones come out on Tuesday, same time as this audio podcast. But then you also get... Uh, a classic episode not yet released on video or never before released on video, I should say, on Thursday. So that's two video episodes a week. Definitely check them out. Can't wait to share them with you. Uh, thank you so much. Play us out as always is The Chud with All About Evil.
Hey everyone, thanks for listening to Colton Classic Podcast. This podcast is important to me, but what's more important are the rights, privileges, and freedom from violence of everyone in this country and in this world. And that means supporting Black Lives Matter. If you'd like to make a donation, please go ahead and visit coltonclassicpodcast.com where we have a list of places you can donate and help out. And please stay safe.